Welcome to Funds That Won, where we dive into some of the world's most renowned investment funds. We'll interview investment managers across the alternative landscape and learn how they built their million and even billion dollar asset management empires. We'll explore teams, structures, strategies, and best practices in launching and running alternative investment funds. Good to have you here with me today. Thanks for the opportunity, man. Excited to be here at Fun Launch and hanging out with you. Yeah, good to have you. I mean, tell me about your business. Let's start there. Yeah, so uh, my business has evolved over time, but it it really started, um, like I was telling you before, by a dream of having a beach apartment. I thought that would have been really cool. And uh, at that time, I was studying hospitality. So I went to hotel school to learn how to you know, manage uh, food and beverage operations and hotels. And at that time, my, my side job was teaching kite surfing on the beach, which for people that don't know it, it's a, it's a sport where you hook onto a big kite on the beach and you become like superhuman. You can jump 30 feet in the air, yeah, you can I've go at 25 miles an hour. Uh, it's crazy. So I was one of the first 100 people in the world to learn how to kite surf. And I was like 12 years old. I would always look up to these beach apartments. And I, like I was saying, my dream was, man, if one day I could make enough money to buy one, that would be the coolest thing. And <laughs> that's kind of where it started. And so now you have, uh, what, 30? We have about 30 uh, properties. It's yeah. a combination of a lot of them are beach apartments. Um, all of them have million-dollar ocean views. That's kind of like what I've been focusing on. And we have anywhere from studios to one bedrooms, two bedrooms, three bedrooms. Now we start expanding to much larger houses. We have a house that's nine bedrooms on the mm. beach. We have a waterfront house that has a 100-foot dock in front of it where you can wake up after you brush your teeth, open the sliding door, and go jet skiing one minute later. And we have a 6,500 square foot penthouse uh, on the beach that is all designed with like an Italian uh, look and feel. So when you walk in, even though you're in Puerto Rico, you feel like you're in Italy. So I started transitioning into uh, owning assets that are with a high barrier to entry for other people, which is kind of where I see the business kind of going for short-term rentals. And it's taking me in a, in a, in a really interesting path that I'm excited about. So. So are you just primarily, like, are you doing boutique hotels at all? Or is it just primarily like uh, single family residences that you're renting out? Yeah, so I, I, I tell you what I don't like, right? I don't get excited about cookie cutter hotels. That to me is like a So like fancy, a Marriott chain or you don't want to, you want to touch that. No, I'm a lifestyle guy. Like I've been on the beach. I worked on the beach for a long time. I like to live on my own terms, travel the world, do all these things. And I think it's smart to design and to own real estate that you're excited about. Yeah. When people tell me about multifamily, I think it's a great investment. It just doesn't get my juices flowing. Uh, when people tell me about even Airbnbs, I want to know what's unique about it. So I'm always searching for something that I would pay a lot of money to stay at mm -hmm. or at least pay uh, you know, a good amount of money to have value. So my combination right now, I have a portfolio of properties where you know the 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 core like mission statement of my company it's a place on the beach for everyone and it really started as a you know like my family couldn't afford to like stay on the beach or even own a beach apartment and uh the properties that i went after were properties that had million dollar ocean views but that the price to rent it for the weekend was that like a family like mine could pay 
And obviously that that's still the core of my business. So you can kind of see it almost like a class B multifamily mm-hmm. where, you know, the working class can go and stay. But I also have a good chunk of my portfolio that's diversified in more like this luxury asset. So you could stay with my company for like $90 a night all the way to almost $1,600 a night. Oh, wow. Do you see any part of that uh, spectrum performing better than the other or like, I don't know, where's your sweet spot, I guess? Yeah, that's interesting. It depends on the season. So you'd be surprised. Sometimes I've thought about, oh, maybe I should just focus on this like luxury properties. Yeah. But what's surprising is that, you know, it's like, best way I see it is like, when you go to a grocery store, right? You want to have options, right? You don't want to just have the Coca-Cola or the bottled water or like the Red Bull. You want to have options. So what happens is the same customer can actually stay in a studio because they're traveling solo. Then they're like, oh, I really like Puerto Rico and this company really treated me really well. So now I'm going to bring my family. And then what else do you guys have? So I can basically have that customer Mm. live inside my ecosystem and just buy from me because I have all the options. So depending on the season, the studios and the one bedrooms will carry the entire company because something's happening where that kind of traveler is traveling more. And then sometimes the big properties, like right now, the big properties are carrying the business, right? Mm. And and that's really interesting. So having the combination is, is the way to go. So in Puerto Rico, I, you know, I think I've been there once. I just stopped on a cruise ship, yeah. but I don't think I've spent a lot of time there. Is that, I mean, do you get a lot of cyclicality in the weather? Like, is there a rainy season where you're not getting as many visitors or yep. is it sunshine and rainbows all year round? Yeah, our, uh, <laughs> our season is, uh, best way to look at it is you have to think of like think of a ski resort right something like this right they're yeah. not all the time busy right they have a season yeah where they have snow and they have to capitalize on that so for us the season is between december and then all the way through august so september october november happens to be bad now it's like not the best um so we run at like 50 to 60 percent occupancy on those months during the rest of the year we have a very unique thing about Puerto Rico, which is we have two high seasons with like a middle season in the middle that it, it makes it unique. So when you look at a market such as, I wanna say, let's say Calgary, right? Where, where we live. So Calgary has a high season, which is summertime. It's the high season. And then winter is actually kind of like a low season. Mm. In Puerto Rico, we happen to have two high seasons, which is what I, got really excited about once I kind of bumped into it because I started looking to expand into other markets and they don't have this. So this is one of the reasons why Puerto Rico will beat places like Florida as an example. Yeah. And you think like, why, why is that? We have two high seasons. When, when in the U.S., in the tropical markets of the U.S., uh, it's December and January and February, it is still a little bit chilly. So it's still not fully tropical for someone that's coming to escape the cold. And that's where Puerto Rico really shines because we have the whole six, seven months. It's pretty cool. Gotcha. Hey guys, thanks for listening. As you know, we don't run ads on this channel. So if you could really help me out, if this podcast has added any value to you or your business, uh, please subscribe, rate, and review. I would appreciate that greatly. Thank you. So where did you get the uh, money to start buying these properties? Did you raise it from LPs? Did you just use your own money? You know, how did you go out and get into this business in the first place? I was teaching kitesurfing, man. Uh, (laughs) I saved a lot of money teaching kitesurfing. Kitesurfing is like a one-on-one coaching. Uh, You know, an hourly rate for teaching kitesurfing is $125 an hour. And my courses were three hours 
long. And I got so busy that I one day I woke up and I had 13 instructors working for me. Wow. And my margin was 80%. So it's I a had a business. lot of margin <laughs> uh, and I just made a lot of money. I saved about $100,000 in, you know, about, I wouldn't say five years. And I just, you know, started investing. The way I started investing was not the typical way. I, I started going after leases instead of purchases. And I really bumped into the strategy. I didn't actually mastermind it. You know, mm. it was more like. If you fell upon it. I fell upon it. And then I just started, you know, investing that 100K into leases, leasing properties with permission to sub-rent them or sub-lease them as a short-term rental. So the arbitrage was finding a property that I could pay 900 to $1,000 a month, but that the nightly rate would be like $200. So with like five to seven days, I would cover my, uh, my rent, my obligations, and then the rest would be profit. I kind of like use the same model that I have with my kitesurfing business, and I'd apply it to this with my own money, essentially. Gotcha. And then you started purchasing the properties outright rather than subleasing, or do you still just sublease? So no, I, I, I subleased everything at first. And then after a while, I started kind of playing with numbers and I wonder, what if I just bought one of these? Like the one that I really think is good. And it came out of necessity because when you're leasing properties, you're really at somebody else's mercy, right? Yeah. And I started ed educating more. I was like, oh, I think I need to own something. So I own one, I fixed it up, I refinanced, and I took $151,000 of proceeds. And I was like, wow, what just happened? I wonder how many more times can I do that? And then I just started Basically, I rolled that money into another purchase and another purchase. Then I started learning how to do creative deals. Uh, and that's really where I think the, the secret is. Like, if you can be really creative with real estate, um, yeah, real so estate me, is me, not... Give me an example. So uh, I'll give an example. Somebody looks at this and says, okay, how can I get started in real estate with very little money? Mm -hmm. Okay. So most people would think I have to go to the bank to get the money to buy a property. I don't care if it's a $100,000 property or $2 million property or even $10 million property. So what I did is I said, instead of going to buy the property at right, I'm gonna go and lease the property. And the reason is because a lot of people go after volume. I didn't really care about volume. I cared about the best of the best, right? The best view, the best location. And I typically those properties are expensive. So I figured if I can position myself to be the, the first runner up so that when that property comes for sale, I have the option to buy it. And I have built a relationship with the owner where they understand that I'm very interested in having the shot to buy it. Then at least I don't have to compete and competition is not what you want. So I've been able to put myself in positions to buy properties and because I've been able to uh, develop great relationships with the condos, the owners, then I can start telling them about my creative solution, which is, hey, why don't you seller finance the property to me? Why don't we roll over some of that rental towards the purchase? Why don't I keep paying you the same that I've been paying you, uh, uh, you know, in a seller finance situation, but you also take some money uh, upon the purchase and I remove all the responsibilities and owners. So now, you went from being a landlord to being a bank. And you've seen how big banks are, Yeah. right? So, and then I, I would also communicate, hey, you're selling me the property for 250,000. 
But by the time this is all said and done, you're really selling the property for 500000 So when you learn all these things and you start communicating uh, with the right person in the right position, you can make a lot of money with very few properties. And that's well, uh, one of the main examples. I've done a lot of stuff. So I love it. So Sorry, what's the name of your firm? My company is Capital Jet Set. Capital Jet Set. Yes. So what, is a, what does a future look like for Capital Jet Set? Uh, what does the next five, 10 years uh, look like for you guys? Yeah, I think that the market is evolving right now. And, you know, when, when people think of short-term rentals, I think as of this podcast, a lot of people are, you know, you're looking at what's happening in the United States with regulation, and even it's happening in Puerto Rico. And when you think of short-term rental, I think one of the many things that come into your mind is like, okay, am I going to get regulated? And I've gotten regulated myself as of like last week in one of our properties, right? So the way, the way it's going to evolve is that we're going to not focus so much on uh, leasing properties, and we're going to be very picky in the properties that we manage. So right now, we are focusing on properties that if we're going to lease them, we're leasing them from, from owners that are very hands-off out of state where we can have at least a 40% margin. And if we're going to manage a property, the property has to generate over $150,000 of gross revenue a year. And it has to be a unique property with an out-of-state owner as well. And the reason for that is because we're mitigating the risk of regulation. So what that means is when we're leasing property, we actually have a clause in our contract that says, if regulations kick in, we're no longer uh, tied to that contract. Oh, interesting. Which is pretty cool, right? Uh, and we negotiate that upfront. We have a lot of little clauses like that. Uh, and if somebody wants to look at our contract, I'm happy to provide it as, uh, to your audience. Yeah. Uh, it's a one to two payer, very simple. But right now it's gonna get us out of a lease. Uh, because of regulation. The way we're moving into the next five to 10 years, which I'm really excited about, is to get into the hotel market, but not in the cookie cutter hotel, more in the lifestyle boutique hotel. And th there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is because I think the Delta or the Alpha in the hospitality business that you cannot really do on a lot of other types of real estate assets is to get a really high rate for a nightly stay, right? And what you don't want is you don't want to be compared. You want to be so unique that there's like a one-year wait to stay at your hotel. And that's all I think about, right? So as we're moving forward, I'm already thinking, I have to go boutique. I have to go lifestyle. I'm going to leverage my experience with kite surfing and all that tourism background that I have because that's that I was doing an experience business before and I was getting paid a lot for it per hour. And I'm gonna implement that into the boutique hotel so that when you go out there and you say, hey, I wanna go to Puerto Rico, I could stay at the Hilton, I could stay at all these hotels, or I can stay at this really cool hotel where I'm gonna meet artists, yoga instructors, kite surfing instructors. I'm gonna go and do snorkeling tours. We're gonna do like barista coffee. And, and you're going to pay more for that because it's yeah. going to be hard to get into that hotel. And, and that's the great positioning where I can find cheap assets that I can buy creatively or a very low entry point. And through the experience, I can take $150 a night room and I can charge $500. I can charge $1,000 a night. Mm -hmm. Just to put it in perspective, are you familiar with the Amman Hotels? 
I've heard of them, but I haven't stayed in them. Yeah, so Anaman Hotel is like a 20 to 25 room hotel that rents for 1500 to $5,000 a night. So they only have 20 to 25 rooms and they get to charge this much because it's experience exclusive and uh, the rooms when it sells as a real estate asset, uh, the last man sold for $2,000 a key. Wow. Two, no, sorry, two, $2 million a key. Two okay, million. okay, I was gonna say. Two million. <laughs> two I'm million, sorry. I was like, wait a second. Yeah, it sold for $2 million a key. Uh, so when you look at that, you're like, okay, there's something here, right? You can really pull levers in this hospitality assets to make like um, really tremendous returns. Yeah. Do you ever worry about, so are you planning on just staying in the, you know, Puerto Rican in, like area? Do you, are you going to expand uh, into other areas? Like just outside looking in, are you like, it's almost like I, I would be worrying about like self-sabotage, right? The more properties you build, like you know, you're kind of pulling them away from your other, your other assets. Yeah. I mean, what do you guys, how do you think about that? Um, well, I, I think about it this way right now, if you want to buy a condo in Puerto Rico or anywhere, you can do it. You don't need me for that, right? You can just go there and do it. The problem with that is it doesn't generate the alpha, right? It just generates like a very low return. Um, and you really need to find a property manager as, as, uh, wages are going up, the property management costs are going up. So the owner's really not making that much money. Hmm. So what's happening is a lot of people are hesitant, especially out of state, to invest because they're investing in the strategy we were doing 10 years ago, which doesn't generate the returns anymore. So for me, I look at it more as like that. I know that's not generating yield anymore because I can see it every day. Yeah. And I see now how the customers really want unique spaces that are larger and just to give some really good nuggets like if you're gonna invest in a short-term rental you want to go and buy a house or a condo that has four bedrooms at the minimum ideally five and up because at that point you can pretty much charge whatever you want and and you don't need that many stays in order to make some really good returns mm -hmm. and i'll give you an example we have a property that's nine bedrooms and in the month of December of this year, it is vacant 80% of the days. Yet this property is gonna make about $31,000. It's just one house in one month. Wow. And it cost us, our costs in that house are about five grand. We bought it creatively. Uh, we It was an operating property. So you just bought a business. So you can have a 20% occupancy rate and still make money. Incredible returns. I mean, it's six x you know return on investment on yeah. On that Typically, market. the the high end market. If you, when you think of the San Regis hotels, when you think of the Amman hotels, they're not necessarily running at ninety percent occupancy. In fact, you don't want to run a ninety percent occupancy. Yeah. Because if you do, you're not you're not really uh, attracting the right customer, and you're not charging the right amount. So the San Regis like to run at fifty percent, sixty percent occupancy. Uh, they don't want to be full. It doesn't feel right if it's full mm -hmm. and your rate would be really low. So I, I think that's where it's evolving. The one thing that I, that's really important to add, to say is that Puerto Rico has the best incentives for hospitality. And we can go into that if you want. I'd love to. Okay. I'd love to. I, well, there's, uh, there's tens of mil hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars flowing into Puerto Rico yep. for, you know, tax reasonings. Uh, I'm sure that is a benefit to maybe, uh, 
international uh, LPs, but I mean, talk to me about, you know, how you think about that side of your business. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned is like, hey, are you worried that you're going to oversaturate the market with, with product or supply? And what happened is what's surprising is Puerto Rico competes with the Dominican Republic and with Mexico because, you know, you have a choice of where you can travel. You hop on the same plane. Mm -hmm. the, the airplane does the work and it takes you somewhere, right? And you want to be warm and you want to be in a beautiful beach. It happens to be that Puerto Rico is the only one out of those three that's a United States territory. So what that means is that you're not required to have a passport. And you and I travel and we're like, oh, passport's not a big deal. But you would be shocked. The working class of America doesn't necessarily have passports. So for them to go on a tropical uh, destination holidays, they would have to go get a passport. And that's really cumbersome. So in Puerto Rico, you just go with your driver's license and you can hop on a, on a cheap spirit flight Southwest, 100 bucks, 150 bucks from the East Coast of the United States and be in Puerto Rico and, you know, from Miami, two hours, uh, New wow. York, four hours. So a couple of movies and you're yeah. in Puerto Rico. And if you're in the, the cold states, you escape, escape the cold in four hours with no password for cheap. It's, it's a tough proposition to say no to, right? Yeah. So what happened is, um, but because we are a U.S. territory, our costs for labor are much more similar to the U.S. in comparison to the Dominican Republic. So as an example, it's not the same, but in Puerto Rico, minimum wage right now is about $8.50, which is very low, but nobody gets paid $8.50. Now we're at $12 an hour. Some people are getting paid $15 an hour in Puerto Rico. And we're in Dominican Republic. Somebody will make like 30 bucks a day, right, for labor. So that is our competition. So what mm -hmm. happened is, uh, and the reason I'm saying that is because on one side, Puerto Rico has labor is more expensive, but it has this advantage of like proximity to the U.S., the relation with the U.S., the no passport, cheap flights. Uh, but Dominican and Mexico have like 50,000 rooms, where Puerto Rico only has like 15,000 rooms. Mm. So we are undersupplied like crazy. So what happened is the government decided, how do we make, make it so attractive that it would be a no-brainer to develop more supply, right? So it's kind of like if you've seen Alex Hermosi's book, The $100 oh, yeah. Million Dollar Offer. Yeah. He says, make an offer so great that you would be stupid not to take it. Right. Okay? So that's the government sat down and they said, let's make an incentive law that is so significant that you're, you're basically stupid not to do it. So what they did is they said, okay, if you take the risk on Puerto Rico, considering the wages are higher and then we're competing with Dominican and Mexico, uh, we, will cr we will give you a tax credit of 40%, so 40%, 40% of your total investment, including the first year of operations. Uh, so I'll give you an example. Right now, there's a hard rock coming into Puerto Rico. It's going to be a $500 million investment. And by the way, there is no cap on this. So if you go and build a hotel, whether it be a $1 million hotel to a $500 million hard rock, the government's going to issue you a piece of paper that's worth 40% of the total investment. So they're going to get a $200 plus million tax credit, which is going to lower their cost basis you know, to 60 cents on the dollar. What? And, uh, and that's, that's tax-free. 
right? So now you're like, okay, where else can I find that? And then you go in the market, you're like, well, nobody else has that. Okay. You're like, I'll do it just for that. And they're like, no, no, it's still not enough. Let me give you some more. You're like, really? What else is there? Selling me on Puerto Rico here, man. <laughs> so, um, and there's a way those tax credits come. So if you're wondering how does that work? So the way it doesn't work is that if you bring in a proposal, they're not just gonna write you a tax credit. You have to see it through um, and you actually get the first third after the first year of operations. So they'll issue the piece of paper. Imagine they cut it in, in three pieces, right? The first third goes in month 13 after you open. The second uh, piece comes in the month 27 after you open. And the last one comes in the month 30 something, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and that way you see the project through because they want you to keep operating, but that's not enough. They said this offer is good, but it's not stupid good. So what they did is they said, <clears throat> what if we created um, an ongoing benefit? And the ongoing benefit, they said, hey, what if we uh, bless that entity with a preferential tax rate of 4%? Okay, so typically corporate tax rate in Puerto Rico starts at 18.5%, and it can go up to 25 to 30%. So when people think Puerto Rico is a tax haven, it is, but for certain things. It's not for anything, right? So that's why you really want to study this incentive law, because it's like they want rooms. They want you know solar. They want a lot of these things. So the 4% corporate tax rate, what it does is it makes your, your, uh, your EBITDA, your profit, a lot larger, which makes your asset a lot more valuable, right? Because now you're not mm. paying all this money in taxes. You're saving a lot of money in the corporate tax rate, but that's not enough. That's still not good enough. So what they said is that, hey, since you're buying these old properties, these uh, you know, locations that are you have to create value, we're gonna discount property tax by 75%. So property tax is a huge one, especially in real estate. So we only pay 25% of what it would be in the US, but that's still not enough. And are these grandfathered in or like for just right now for the time being until they, or is there is there a term date on these laws? I'm gonna get there. Okay. Get there. <laughs> that's the punchline. Okay. <laughs> so 75% on, on uh, taxes, on property tax, 50% discount or, or exemption on uh, municipality fees and construction fees, which is a big one. Um, and tax distributions, LPs would love this. Tax distributions are tax-free. So what that means is if you're getting a 10% IRR or a 15% IRR or 20% IRR, there's no tax on that money. And that's huge because I don't know which any other investment. So it does, on my K-1, it won't come through as ordinary income? Yeah, no. So the way it works, this is really important. The way it works is that the government of Puerto Rico wants uh, investment to stay in Puerto Rico and they'll say, as long as the money is utilized and it stays in Puerto Rico, whether it be a Puerto Rico entity that an LP can create. So if you're an American citizen and you want to uh, create an entity, uh, you should create a Puerto Rico LLC, which you can do over a website. It takes a few minutes. You loan money to that entity, which is gonna be a hospitality entity, okay? So now you're in the hospitality mm -hmm. business. So now when you have ordinary business expenses and you're, you know this stuff better than me, there's some things that you can write off through that entity. Any money that 
that entity gets is tax-free. The moment you flow that money to wherever you flow it, if it's Switzerland, Germany, Venezuela, or United States, then your local uh, government will tax it, right? So it is tax-free as long as it stays within Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. My suggestion is to consult with your CPA on how you can uh, utilize that entity as part of your hospitality uh, strategy. But guys, that's not enough. They said this benefit will last for 15 years and it'll be, uh, it can be extended for another, another 15 years. So what I just explained will last for 15 years. And uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> that is incredible. Are these laws new or when did these come out? They've been around for about five years. Okay. Uh, the thing is that the word is sort of out, but it's not really, a lot of people are, the early adopters really catch, you know, they uh, cashed in. And now people are coming in now and you have to pay a little bit more for assets. But yeah, there's, if you go to Puerto Rico and I show you around, uh, it'll, it'll surprise you that the law is still going for the next 10 years and it'll last for another 15 to 30 years to whomever buys assets. So what I'm telling people is there's a window right now and you need to look at Puerto Rico because you can own a piece of Puerto Rico uh, and you should own a piece of a hotel in Puerto Rico. There's no question about it. Mm. The lifestyle play, the cash flow play, the appreciation play, uh, it's awesome. I love it. I love it. Hey guys, so if you want to learn more about investment funds, uh, how they work, how they're structured, if you want to become a fund manager, how I became a fund manager, visit our YouTube channel for more free value. The link is in the show notes. Thank you. All right, we've talked a lot about real estate. Uh, JC, just tell me about tell me about your personal life. I'd love to hear more about you. Yeah, so I was raised from a you know lower middle class family like. My mom's family was farmers, coffee, cattle, cattle. My dad's family was a small, like, mom and pop insurance company in a countryside of Puerto Rico. Uh, they, uh, you know, they got together. I'm, I'm the, the youngest of four kids and uh, maybe an oops. <laughs> uh, but I've always been very entrepreneurial. I remember as a, as a kid, um, we had this, my parents gather a little bit of money and we rented this this house in an island. So one of the things that we do as Puerto Ricans is when we, and a lot of people do this, when they cannot travel to other countries, they travel within the country. So we would hop on a ferry and go to another one of the, Puerto Rico has over a hundred islands, which a lot of people don't realize. So we would hop into another island. So I remember my parents uh, rented this house after saving a bunch of money for like a trip. And when we went there, we did this race back from the beach to the house on a bicycle my dad said, hey, if you, uh, whomever makes it first out of my four siblings will make $5. And I was like, what? And I was like, I don't know, five or six. Mm -hmm. And dude, I made it to the house like <laughs> like hours before everybody else, okay? Yeah. I was so fast. So then fast forward, I, I uh, always loved food. And I was actually a little chubby as a kid. I always loved eating. I was the kid that was opening the fridge and telling mom, hey, we gotta go shopping, mm -hmm. you know? And that drove me into getting into a home economics class because uh, I figured that it's all girls and I'm the only guy here. Man, if anything, I just get to hang out with a bunch of girls. This is awesome. So I got, it, got into this home ec class and I, because I love food so much and I actually thought I was gonna become a chef, believe it or not. Mm. But 
While I was in that home ec class, I learned how to make a lot of things. And one of them was a carrot cake. And this carrot cake was fantastic. I don't know if you love carrot I cake. I love carrot cake. Okay. Carrot cake's so great. So I make the best in the world. <laughs> and I've been advertising it forever. So when I launch it, you guys got to buy it. But yeah. I, I come home from making this carrot cake. I tell my mother, who's been um, extremely instrumental in my in my growth because she's been empowering it for like forever. And I said, mom, you gotta try this, this carrot cake, it's awesome. So she tries it, she's like, hey, you know, you should sell this door to door. And I was 12 years old and I was like, oh, but how do I buy the ingredients? She's like, oh, I will, I will fund it. So she was my seed capital, if you will. Mm. So she funds the ingredients. I think it costs in ingredients like $20 or something like that. I make 20 cakes. And I'm like, how much am I gonna sell them for? My mom's like, I oh, just put twenty dollars, and this is in nineteen, I don't know, ninety-seven. Twelve, twenty bucks was like maybe fifty bucks now. Yeah. I go to door to door as a twelve-year-old, and I'm, I sell out of these cakes in like a Saturday, and I have four hundred dollars in my pocket, and I'm like, what just happened? That's I'm like, great. mom, this is the best thing in my life. <laughs> Let's do it again. Let's go buy some more ingredients. You put the money, and I go sell them, and I make money. She's like, well, that's not how it works. The way it works now, you take some of that money and you go buy the ingredients yourself. And I was like, oh, that sucks. What a good mom. <laughs> that is a good mom right there. So then I started doing that, started making some money. And then I uh, started washing cars in my neighborhood and selling carrot cakes. Then I bumped into learning how to kite surf, like I had mentioned yeah, before. That's right. And I really sucked at surfing, boogie boarding, basketball. I sucked at so many sports. I was a really good baseball player. Uh, but in kite surfing, I was a natural. Like, mm. typically, it takes about ten hours to learn how to kite surf. It took me fifteen minutes of explanation with a sport that was like in its inception. Mm. So then I I uh, I read a book called The Four Hour Work Week. Oh yeah, changed Tim, my Tim life. Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss changed my life. He said that if you create a muse or a business that can fund your lifestyle, you are basically financially free. And at that time, <clears throat> I didn't have any expenses. Uh, the other cool thing that my mom did is she told me, hey, from that money that you're making with the carrot cake business, if you save a dollar, I will match it with another dollar, okay? And my mom, by the way, my mom was raising four kids. My dad was jumping out of a bunch of jobs. My mom was making basically most of the money in the family. Mm -hmm. And for her to do that was a lot, but she wanted to incentivize me to save money which I think it's extremely important. It's like right now, people don't understand the importance of having like a safe, like like savings, right? Yeah. People talk about, oh, you should invest anything, you shouldn't save anything. I disagree, I think you need to have some savings. At least it makes me go to sleep at night yeah. a lot better. So dude, my mom matched me a dollar, so I took her all, all the way to a thousand dollars. And then she's like, done. All right. That's good, <laughs> you're, gonna, you're gonna break my bank. But it really helped me save money which fast forward is how I saved $100,000 from my kite surfing school to start my, my Airbnb business, right? So what happened is that as we, as we transitioned into uh, this kite surfing world and the book, I was like, wow, if I could make this kite surfing business fund my lifestyle where I neutralize my costs, then I can travel the world, which is what turns out a lot of my kite surfing students were rich people a lot of fund managers, a lot of business owners that had no time. And they would come and learn from me and my school and they couldn't believe it. They're like, you get to do this for a living and make money 
And by the way, you only work seven months out of the year because that's where the season was. And then you travel for five months. How much money do you have? And I'm like, you'd be shocked. I don't have that much money. I just don't have, a, I don't have costs. Yeah. So then I realized uh, that you can actually live like the new rich, which is what he talks about in the book. The new rich is not the one that has possessions and whatever. It's more the person that can really do whatever they want. Yeah. And can travel. So I found myself traveling to exotic places like Mauritius Island, snow kiting in Utah, uh, snow kiting in Alaska, uh, you know, winning snow kiting competitions. That's so fun. So I did a lot of really cool stuff. And I remember at that time, I was thinking, man, this is not really my potential, right? This is just a stage in my life, which I think is also really important that life is stages, right? Yeah. And it's sequence. So for me, I was very conscious at that time that I wanted to do more, but this was an opportunity that I had at that time. I need, it's like a basketball player, right? Yeah. Do you do basketball when you're 40 or do you just do it between 20 and 35? Like as an NBA player where you're, you're in your prime and then you go do business mm -hmm. later on, right? So I chose that path, dude, forever grateful for having done that. Uh, but then doing little things in the meantime to position myself so I could get into the game, which was real estate. Because when I was 12 years old, my mother took me to a real estate conference. Believe it or not, Donald Trump mm -hmm. had a conference in Puerto Rico on how to invest in real estate. No way. He wasn't there himself. He sent some people uh, out there. Okay. But I learned all the strategies on how to do real estate. And dude, I don't know. Took this is one of the beautiful things about kids. They think everything's possible. I was there looking at it. I'm like, this is easy. I can do that. If he, if that guy, if that guy Donald <laughs> Trump can do it, I think I can do it. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I started kind of like learning real estate. So I've been learning real estate since I was 12 years old. Love it. So I have what 25 years of learning so many strategies. So now I'm implementing a lot of that stuff that I learned. Another really cool thing, I got to go back to that hotel last year. <clears throat> where Vina Jetty was, Pace Morby, Jerry Norton, a lot of the you know, big real estate uh, uh, guys that are in the education space and creating communities. Yeah, I was there with them and I, I happened to be the first speaker at that event, which was a really like, kind of like an emotional moment that it was such a full circle moment that I went to that same hotel when I was 12. I saw this guy speaking and then fast forward now, I was the one speaking and telling people about Puerto Rico, tax incentives, hospitality, Airbnbs, lifestyle investing. And it was really cool. But at the same time, I think that, yeah, for me, that the biggest thing about me is like, who's Juan Carlos? Is somebody that's, I want to say is charismatic, excited, uh, curious as hell, uh, thirsty for knowledge. Um, really, I'm in the pursuit of my potential. I'm also in the pursuit of adding as much value to as much people as possible. I'm willing to try things that are extreme, such as flying through mountains and or buying a $10 million hotel. Yeah. And I know that for any of those things, it's all possible as long as you prepare and you have a really good team and you bring that excitement to other people because at the end of the day, people want to be part of something and I want to, you know, create that. So love it what what advice would you have for somebody who's you know just starting out in this industry or or thinking about getting involved yeah i think i think try to try to uh 
Try to be unique. Try to like find something that excites you and and really follow it because you know, even even for me in the last few years, I've started to think about, oh, maybe I should diversify into doing this. Maybe I should diversify into doing that. But I realized that I'm, I'm really an expert in, in one thing and I should just focus on that because I generate much better returns on that. And it, it excites me. It gets me up in the morning. I get excited to go into design meetings. I get excited about picking marble for a hotel. I get excited about listening to other people that are like pursuing uh, what I'm pursuing because I understand it and it's not that much work. So to me, like the other day I was in old San Juan, I was inside a 500 year old building, right? And I'm walking through it. And I remember the guy that took me there. He's like, dude, you're going to do this on like a Sunday. Like you work on Sundays. And I'm like, it's not work, bro. Like, like I can't even believe yeah. I'm getting paid for this. Right. Yeah. So I would say that and just be unique, have fun with it. Not like, you know, don't take yourself too seriously. Like for me, I'm trying to like think more that way. Uh, just really, really find people around you that are excited about this movement. I think this movement, uh, a lot of the big companies and the institutional companies uh, are seeing a lot of value. And there's a really big opportunities for people that want to create these spaces. And the, the, the returns can be astronomic mm. because it just requires an artist to come up with this. So that's really what, what I'm doing is I'm trying to gather myself around as many artists as possible, musicians and like, because that's really where you generate the returns. If not, you should just invest in a REIT, invest in a multifamily and call it a day, you know? So just follow that and I think you'll be okay. Yeah. What, uh, you know, on the personal side, like what what habits do you have that you feel like have attributed to your success, uh, either personal or business? Um, I think that for me, I have a, a thirst for, I'm always thirsty for knowledge. I feel like I don't know anything still. So I, I'm always watching a podcast. I'm always reading a book. I'm always trying to learn something from you and I'm trying to go ahead and implement it as quickly as possible to see if it actually works. So if you and I have a conversation and you tell me this is what I do, like just by being here in the studio, I'm already thinking, okay, how can I implement what I learned so I can see how I can really help my business, my partners, etc. So my superpower is definitely like, I'm going to continue learning as much as possible to become an expert so that, so I'm getting prepared so that when my day comes, I'm not intimidated by the opportunity. I am prepared for the opportunity so I can really tackle it on. So I want to say that whatever it is that you want to do, if you pursue it and you just educate yourself, surround yourself with people that are like, like-minded mm -hmm. and you just always put yourself almost like a student uh, and then implementing stuff. Cause I think going to events is awesome. Having conversations, amazing, but education without implementation, I think it's insanity, right? And for me, that's a big one. I love that. <laughs> Tony Robbins says something similar. He says, knowledge without execution is useless. But what did you say? Say it again. I love that so much. I, I basically think said uh, education without implementation is insanity. Yeah, I like that one better. I, I think it's better. It's the same message, but I think you topped it. Yeah. Um, well, that's incredible. Um, any any sort of uh, pet peeves that you have uh, in business or in just life? One, one of the, the things that I, it's a pet peeve for me is that I need to 
I can't stand still. I don't know if this is a pet peeve or not, but uh, I can't stay in one place. Yeah. Like if you tell me where do you live, I'm like, uh, I live in a hotel or I live in one of my properties and I live in many places because I well, need to go on like experience, right? Well, because you actually, you're, is your pri where, where would you say your primary residence is? It's in Canada, isn't it? Everybody asks me the same question and I say, I don't know. Uh, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, I, I, you know, it's funny. Like when I started my, my business, I had to move from one apartment to the other. So the, the way it worked was really interesting. One of my kite surfing students told me, hey, why don't we get an apartment together? And that's that was my first property. We leased it, and after two months, he had to move out. And then I've always been like a life hacker. And I was like, oh man, I don't want to pay for this property, even though I'm making money. So he said, you should check out this website called Airbnb. This was three years after Airbnb launched in 2012. I listed the apartment that I was in that I thought it was very cool, but I didn't know how great it was. And I got so many bookings that I became homeless through bookings. So I got so much business, I had to pack my, my suitcase, oh, move out. And what's funny is I, I, I was so hungry for growth and, and trying things that I was willing to live out of a suitcase. I was willing to live like no one else so that then I could live like no one else later on, right? Uh, and today, I still live out of a suitcase, even though I have, you know, almost a $17 million portfolio. I think that's gonna go up to like 21 million, like in a matter of a couple months. And I still live in a suitcase because I've always thought I want all these properties to pay for themselves. I want them to pay for my lifestyle and I'm never gonna change that. So I ne never wanna say, hey, I have a residence in one place because I need for this business to work. I need to be mobile. I need to have experiences. And what's funny enough is that I've been following a lot of people that, I'm, that I look up to and they're like that. You know, they, they are traveling, like, I'll give an example, the, the Ryu, if you've ever heard of a Ryu hotel, so a Ryu is R-I-U, it's a family business that has 110 hotels around the world, and the owner still travels every three days, he's on a plane, checking on his hotel uh, properties. Wow. So I, I can see kind of a lot of uh, similarities, and I don't want to have just one residence, I want to just be everywhere, so. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming in today and sharing your story and uh, jumping into the weeds there with me. Really appreciate your time and awesome, fun thank conversation. You. Thank you very much. Yeah, if anybody wants to know more about what we've got going on, uh, you can find me on Instagram or under the JC Morales, or uh, I'm on YouTube under JC Morales as well. Feel free to reach out. I'm open book, tell you all about what's going on, then, then maybe we can do some deals together. Love it. Love it. All right, man. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. All information shared are the sole thoughts and opinions of the author. Do not take any information as legal or financial advice. You should seek a certified accountant and a professional legal team before taking any further action. We are not selling or soliciting a security in any way, shape, or form. This content is for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as financial or legal advice. Clients of Fund Launch or Black Card Capital Partners may maintain positions and securities discussed on this podcast.